0: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have a very special guest in Mr. Frank Rizzo, co-founder of Stone Capital Investors, and the MHP Exchange. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Frank Rizzo has over 20 years experience in real estate as a broker, owner, and syndicator. And for the last 10 years, he has been an active mobile home park operator. During that time, he has acquired and repositioned over 20 mobile home communities, accounting for over 1,500 lots. He has also been elected to serve his local real estate board as a director and then later served as president of the Staten Island Board of Realtors. He's also the host of the MHP Exchange podcast. Welcome to the show, Frank.
1: Thank you, uh, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
0: Excited to dive in here. Would you first start out and tell us about your story and how in the world you got into investing in manufactured housing communities?
1: That's a great question. And as most people from New York City, you know, investing in a mobile home park is very foreign. And I mean, we actually have one mobile home park in all of New York City. It's in Staten Island where we're located. We got involved or I got involved Quite by accident, you know, I was representing a family who owned multifamily buildings in Brooklyn, you know, and it's a typical, you know, first generation success story. The father was an entrepreneur, owned a bunch of small businesses and then didn't have a 401k and took his money and bought multifamily, you know, properties in Brooklyn, in, in downtown Brooklyn, whether it's an eight family, a 20 unit building, a 12 unit building. And over time, having lost the step you know he ended up with 100% occupancy but a 45% credit loss mm. so when they came to me they were about to lose a lot of their they were facing foreclosure on a number of assets and we kind of restructured some of their holdings and they were looking to you know relocate down to north carolina the family was so happy with you know our services that they wanted me to help them find another asset to replace the income that they were income stream that they were going to be missing so as I was doing a search for them, the assets that kept coming up as being the highest yielding opportunities were mobile home parks and, you know, not knowing anything about the mobile home parks and then finding out a little bit more about the space and doing some investigation on it. You know, I made a recommendation to them that you should really 1031 into this space. We found an asset in South Georgia. So this is you know something that I thought would work for them. And the father's answer to me was, I'll only do it if you stay in the deal and you run it for us. So I got, I got a crash course on running a mobile home park from it and operating it from a distance by staying in the deal with them on that first opportunity. And then it just, from there, I, I just fell in love with the space and it became, you know, now it's the sole thing that we look to do and focus on.
0: Wow. So it must've been a a successful venture down there in South Georgia. Would you mind telling us about that first deal and maybe some of the hurdles you faced? I mean, how in the world did you get educated? I mean, you kind of were just like thrust into the asset class by accident, which is kind of how a lot of operators get into the space. Maybe you can tell us about that.
1: Sure. You know, one of the challenges that that we had, and and we kind of, we still have a lot of the information to find out about mobile home park or mobile home investing was very fragmented, right? There wasn't one single source to go to. There wasn't, at that point, there wasn't that many brokers who were knowledgeable in the space. So so you really had this void. But from what I could find was, you know, you were in a very fragmented industry that's still very mom and pop dominated. One of the things that stuck out, that was when the residents owned their homes, Typically you have the stickiest resident in any real estate asset class. So when they own their homes, at that point, the average occupancy for that tenant was 17 and a half years. And they would only leave if they were, if the place was dirty or if the place was unsafe. And to me, that's something that you could do from a distance with good systems in place. So those things stuck out right off the bat. And then as you look further, and we found that there were some distinct tax advantages into doing that and learning what a Rent to own option was and how you can kind of move some of those park owned homes to a rent to own model and over time uh, mitigate some of that variable expense you know from the maintenance. Those were things that really resonated with me. I think the the biggest hurdle was getting the team on the ground and learning how to operate it from a distance. You know, I, I, I built my business being very hands on, and then it's that's where we came up with, hey, I'm not hands-on, I'm not local, but I'm I'm still very hands-on, right? So you still have to maintain that touch to that resident throughout your ownership of it.
0: Totally, yeah, super important. How many lots was that first deal? What was the
1: utility setup? Great question, it was it was 91 lots. It was city water, city sewer, which made it a lot easier. We were acquiring it from an, somebody who had got into the space and he was distressed, so he was not an operator, but he had bought a couple of parks, kind of grouped some investments together, and he had gone bad across the board. And a key component here was that there was some seller financing debt and that the seller, the debt, was go, was willing to be transferred over to the new owner. So we could come in and assume the mortgage that was on the property and then deploy the additional money that we had to make improvements to the homes. So we, we had about 40, 48 homes that were on site. And at that point, there was only 24 residents there. So we had a, a huge wow. opportunity to fill up the vacant, the vacant homes by making some improvements. So we focused initially on getting those renovations, making those homes market ready. So we could bring people in at a at a market rate. At that point, we were in Warner Robins, Georgia, which had just started to kind of turn the corner. And for those of you guys that are not familiar with Warner Robins down in southeast Georgia, it's a great market with a military you know military base, Air Force base that's a big driver, and it just started to pick up really economically in that area. So we, we got in there at exactly the I, I believe the right time before the market really accelerated. So. The utility setup was, you know, key for us because it gave us a lot less variables for us to deal with on our initial, you know, purchase.
0: And that was 2014, 10 years ago. That was 2013. 2013. Wow. I mean, I think everybody listening wishes that they got into the space in 2013. What was it like, you know, buying mobile home parks back then? You know, is it really true what they all say that you could get a 10 cap? You know, uh, 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 you know, all over the place. At,
1: at, at that point, you, 10 cap was the market, right? So you could look, you were looking at, you know, so initially you were looking at at, at a minimum 10, 10 cap walking in straight across the board. And because there wasn't that much competition, especially for sites that needed work, you would get a seller that was willing or, or financing that would be willing to, to find, to be assumed by a new purchaser. So today sure. you might not, you don't, you might not have that leverage, but back then we did. Um, and that really helped us to take on that project because we were able to kind of acquire that debt and and it was at pretty favorable terms to get it reset at that point.
0: Totally. And I mean, this is a huge turnaround project, right? This is like max value add for your first project. 91 lots and only 24 occupied, right? Correct. 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 And you were the manager. You were the guy that was going to go, you know, get your hands dirty and help rehab these homes and bring in homes. So, tell us about that. What did you learn yeah. from that process and, you know, maybe what mistakes did you did you make? So, being that so, your first park.
1: So the the the, mis- the what we learned from that Uh, process number one was you've got to make sure that you have a good team on the ground. We were fortunate that we got a on-site manager who lived in the community next door. Uh, And so we were able to have somebody who was really eyes on the ground that could make sure that the culture was there. And by offering real value in the community, we were able to fill up those vacant homes really quickly, right? We were able to get people from different parks that saw the changes that were being made. And so inside of 12 months, we filled up almost all of those vacant homes. So the absorption rate there was was phenomenal. And we could see see an acceleration of increasing the rents because people were, it, it was a great product to have. We were able to offer value. We were being very active and proactive about, Community rules, what we allowed, what we didn't allow in the park. And it's there where I really learned that that culture is so important. And that it's not just in hey, I I, renovating the home and leaving it there. It's that you have to lead first by making the improvements, and then you have to maintain community rules because that culture is so important. In keeping that emotional connection with the resident and the community. If you allow, you know, someone to come in and, you know, put their car up on blocks or to, you know, become a, a junk collector in their lot, that's going to impact your other residents and it's, and they're going to notice, right? And then, you know, that one bad apple can, can literally spoil the bunch. Totally. Let's talk a little bit more about that, right? Because are you familiar with the
0: broken window theory? Yes, right? It's the same thing, right? It's that, you know, one broken window will lead to three more and it'll lead to trash and crime. It's been, uh, is proven, but let's talk about that. So lead first and maintain the rules. Did you
1: do all this remote? I did all of this remote. You know, obviously technology has gotten a lot better even in the, in the last 10 years. So you're able to do more things remotely because you can track You could get pictures and videos and see exactly what's happening on the ground. And, you know, make no mistake, I was down on the ground frequently, but I live in New York and I'm operating it from a distance. And, you know, this being the first community I was involved in, didn't even have the infrastructure or the setup that we have now and the the staff that handle what we do now. But it gave me a crash course of realizing that this can be done remotely and we can build out a platform without having necessarily to to be right next door.
0: Yeah, impressive, especially on your first deal. I mean, I remember my first like five deals. I'm super hands-on and like I moved on location and lived in a house in one of the parks while we were going through that rehab stage, in you know, like the first four months of ownership, just because, you know, I just I don't know maybe I'm a control freak Hmm. but I I just wanted to be able to see and be there when the contractors were working and make sure they weren't you know slacking right so obviously videos and stuff help but there's nothing I just I haven't I haven't you know seen a a a way to not catch everything without being on site Uh, but that's impressive
1: well it's listen that even to this day on the on the major capital improvements we want to be down when it happens I mean I always tell. People, there's there's two great days. When the your favorite day is obviously the day you close on a new deal, it's like you're super excited. The next best day is the day you're doing the roads. Like, so I always love being down there when the roads are getting done because just it becomes a community event. You see people come out of their homes. And I'm sure you've experienced this. Like people watch that, especially when you have a, a community where the roads have been, you know, in such disrepair. And 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 you know, it impacts their lives. I mean, they've got to go around. They're driving on the grass. They're doing everything to avoid the the craters. And when you do that, it becomes a community event, and you get to meet everybody. And and I've always found that the community is thankful and and appreciative and it and i love being on site for whenever we're doing roads i mean I, I we make it our business to to show up and be there because that's uh that's something that you can't i don't want to miss <laughs>
0: this is this is how big of a control freak i am in any project we've ever installed new roads i'm always there with a ruler measuring to make sure that i get my 3 inches of asphalt wow. because you know i don't <laughs> want to get screwed over because that's not cheap. You know, that's not so cheap. Expensive. It's not cheap. And <laughs> if they do a one inch, you know, kind of, you know, layover on the top, that stuff's going to be, you know, potholes again in, in six months. So, but yeah, that's it that everybody loves the new black top. It's a big mm-hmm. win. How has your strategy changed, Frank, you know, since 10 years ago, since this first value add project, are you guys still looking for more value add projects like this that you manage remotely or, you know, what's your new approach?
1: So, so, Andrew, that's it's funny. We we have this internal conversation all the time. We typically and you know, we trend towards a deep value add opportunistic situations. So I always like to tell people I might not have a lot of hair on it, but my deals always do. So for us, the more challenging it almost is is the better. Um I, I have maybe it's just how I started in in the business looking at distressed you know, situations that it's tough for me to come into a, you know, fully stabilized community and play like the rent acceleration game. We like to go in there knowing that we're adding value and taking on projects that maybe a lot of other operators would shy away from. Like we're getting set to close on a property actually tomorrow in Jacksonville, North Carolina. It's 47 sites with some expansion opportunity, 37 homes that are there on site, The first time we were down there, literally, we saw five drug deals in 10 minutes. We talked with the owner. We left. We came back. There was a drug raid at the the unit that we saw the drug deals happening. And we're closing on it tomorrow, knowing full well that we're going to have to go in there, do a a complete removal of probably two thirds of the residents and start over because the good people there are staying inside and the bad people are outside, you know, taking over the spot. And we know if we go in there, we can implement a strategy where 12 months from now, the good people will be outside and the bad people won't be in the community anymore. And so we we've tended to focus on opportunities like that. We think that by doing that, we can add value for the resident and for the community at large. And so that's that's where we've we've tended to focus. Nice. We, uh,
0: public utilities, private utilities. How's that one set up?
1: So this one's a mix. We do have public water, uh, but we have private. Uh, a sewer. So, you know, as we've gone on, you know, where we originally we started out, obviously you want public utilities. That is, that is, you know, one of the things that we one of the boxes we look to check. But as we've gone on in the space, and you, you know, you get more comfortable with some of the variables that you're you're going to be faced with. And so now we're, you know, if there's a well or a septic or a private wastewater treatment plant, you know, it comes down to a, a your your acquisition. We realize that there's a discount to each one of these different variables. And if we're buying right, we we can we can assess that risk knowing going in full well that this is the situation we're going to deal with. But you know there's not you know one silver nugget. It's easy to say, you know, I, sure. I just want city water, city sewer, but as you know, you're in the space across the country, if you did that, you're going to shy away from a lot of good opportunities out there, and we like to to keep ourselves open. If if we could buy right,
0: yeah, no, I looked at a few deals last year that had wastewater treatment plants, and I just after talking with the operator, you know, the guy that like handles the wastewater treatment plant, you know, I just couldn't get comfortable with it, you know, just just because of the costs, you know, I was like, yes. I was asking him worst case scenario, you know, everything goes bad in here you know because it's at like that it's a 50 year life expectancy and it's at year 40 mm-hmm. you know what what's that going to look like and and again it doesn't mean it's going to happen it you know if it, if it's been maintained well but you know it could easily be 500,000 to a million dollars to replace one of those things and i mean that's just scary well, i would yeah, say yeah. in jacksonville north carolina for example we looked at a park cuz i i buy value add stuff too mm. We looked at a park that had a well system and I was I was talking with Ryan Norris who mm-hmm. uh, is up in that area and we were going to buy it together and during due diligence we found that you know we contacted the EPA to get the the testing results and and like two years ago they found radon in the ground so it's like little things like that that people just need to be aware of right if you do your proper due diligence you can you know you, you can avoid it but with private utilities, you're opening up Pandora's box for all these things that could potentially go wrong. And that's why I just prefer the, the public utilities, but yeah. How have you guys you know overcome some of that?
1: So like you said, just there, it's in the diligence, right? So you have to make sure that you not only speak to the operator, but of whatever that, that treatment facility is, but you speak with the County and you know what the rules and the regulations are going to be for that system. So in the event of worst case scenario, where, what is my fix? How do I get there? And what do I need to do to operate that system? And so that's that's part of the process. And then you have to take that into your cost from the beginning, right? So, you know, in doing that and walking downstream and you get more comfortable with it, obviously you want the seller to pay for it now. Right. So here's where it is. This is where the discount we need to market based off of the scenario you have and getting yourself comfortable with how that's going to to operate, whether it's even if it's a septic system, how that's going to lay out. Because, you know, we have, of course, our portfolio, we have a number of septic systems, which, quite frankly, took me a little while to get comfortable with. What's
0: the secret? What's the secret to due diligence on a septic system? Because I haven't figured it out yet.
1: You know what? You have to ask a lot of questions and you have to make sure that you're comfortable with how how the county is going to look at. Uh, and the county health department is going to look at putting in a new system, their life expectancy, what's going to be grandfathered in, what's not and what their setbacks are going to be. So, you know, going forward, it,
0: if it like you said, bad, if it goes bad,
1: th- yeah, this is what I'm. In- this is. This is what it's going to look like. I'm going to be here and I'm going to have to do this. Because a lot of these parks, you know, they have a mixed, you know, system setup. So, you know, figuring out where you where you have to put your field lines, how much space you need. I mean, that's that's a whole project in itself. But, you know, in doing your due diligence and making sure that you've checked off your boxes, you can eliminate some of those concerns or hurdles. Yeah. So, I don't, do you pump? Do
0: you pump the tanks? Not
1: not you know, personally.
0: Not personally, but like when you do due diligence, <laughs> do you pump the the septic tanks to like drain them to like, you know, check it all out, well, you know, we, make sure there's no holes in the tanks and stuff like that.
1: So on, I mean, you could buy a park that has eighty septic tanks. You know, you're not you're not going to pump at all eighty septic tanks. We did, you know, we've acquired parks that had septic tanks that were on they had multiple units there. Mm-hmm. So that one you'd want to pump out and see where there might be any problems and do some investigations on those lines, but if it's a one-to-one ratio and you're not, and you could tell from the ground if there's leaking or not, I mean, you'll, you'll see that pretty evidently. I mean, we do a testing throughout there. and We do get it inspected, but to pump out each individual lot, we, that we don't do. I, I don't think it's, you could do it. I don't think it's absolutely, necessary. absolutely ne- necessary, yeah. but we do keep the septics on a maintenance program, right? Like, so these sure. systems like anything else, you know, it's like anything else, even if you have a sewer system, you know, you have some sewer systems in these parks and they were, how they were put together. You have to make sure that you're pumping out those sewer systems at those connection points on a, on a regular basis, because, you know, you can have issues there. So it's like anything else, you have to maintain it. You have to know what the, where the pressure points are and you have to make sure you're watching it. So that's, you know, one of the things that I'm sure you've, picked up along yeah, the way. Only it's, only
0: by making mistakes, right? I, yeah. I've i had to replace a lift station, if you know what one of those are. And so I'm just super cautious now. Like we do, we pumped 67 septic tanks on a park that we bought just to like, get them inspected, shove a camera in there, make sure that there's no like holes hmm. in these old, you know, plastic tanks. But yeah, it's just, there's a lot to it. And that's what people to need to realize is, hey, if you go with the, you know, a guy who's buying his first trailer park, there's more risk there than going with a seasoned operator like yourself or myself that has been around the block, has made mistakes, has learned from them and has better due diligence processes. But moving on from that, because that, uh, you know, the septic tank convo is not really engaging. Let's talk about the last few years with higher interest rates. How have you guys pivoted to get deals done or have you been on the sidelines? You know, what, what's your acquisition pipeline been been looking like?
1: So the last two years, we have been very, and I, I credit my team. We've been very disciplined. You know, if things are in our buy box, we're super aggressive. But as prices accelerated, we've had more exits than acquisitions, quite frankly. So we we looked at some of the opportunities that we were in, and you know, as we underwrite them to a five or six year timeline, we realized that we had some values in year three that we probably we underwrote to year five, right? So when we looked at the timeline, we said, "Look, this is if if." We don't maintain these levels. We might not see them for a while. So we hit the ex- exit button because our business plan had been fulfilled, quite frankly. We have seen in the last 12 months a little bit more opening up in the market, um, but it's being diligent. I mean, deals come back to you over time, right? It's being consistent in in the follow-up because we've seen more deals fall through and that's helped us in the last you know 12 months pick up some what we felt some really good opportunities Just by being persistent and being able to close. So that's, that's been a a key component for us, you know, for, you know, typically when we're buying these, you know, essentially one star communities, we're not going in there with debt day one, right? So we know we're going to go in there, we're unlevered um, or with some seller financing. So we haven't been, that hasn't held us up on the buy. But usually our first exit is to a refinance after stabilization. You know, we just feel that as the asset has to to get hold, and we know that there's going to be a transition period. We don't want to have the extra stress of of financing hold us, holding us up as we're kind of turning that community around. So if we know that we've got to exit, like in this recent example, you know, 20 residents probably have to find another place because they're either non-payment or non-conforming. It's tough to put debt on there, and then maybe violating a covenant. And and so we'll rather come in there, buy it with cash. And then as we stabilize the community, we can look to recapitalize.
0: You have a very unique model, Frank. I don't think I've met anyone else that does deep, deep value add like this. Like my model is more mid value add. Like I like stuff 60, 70% occupied. I can come, you know, fill that last little bit of vacancy and, you know, infill or do some rehabs or Submeter water sewer and you know do some general improvements that's kind of the you know the base hit that i go after but it, it seems like you're going after these heavy lifts and i love how you're coming in buying them cash and you know rolling your sleeves up to do the work i think i think if you if you really step back i think you have less risk because you are uh there's so much room to go up if you're buying these things your basis is is so low like every dollar you're spending you're you're doubling it on the value you're going to get out of it. So I think, uh, you know, the biggest risk is just in in your execution. So maybe tell us about your team. What does your team look like? Do you handle the property management in-house? Yeah, what's that? So,
1: so that's a, that's a great question. So the first deal we did where we syndicated, right, which was after the, the 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 one that we the deal we did in Georgia, raising money from here was like pulling teeth, getting people from New York to want to invest in Jacksonville, Alabama. Yeah. And we hired a property manager and right? we said, look, let's let's try to, you know, let's be super conservative. Let's hire a third party manager. We hired somebody in that town that was very highly rated, you know, managed a number of different apartment <laughs> complex and single family residents. We thought we would be very comfortable with them. Within six months, they fired us because uh, we <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, having
0: people been, need to hear this. People uh, need to hear this. Yes, you can get fired by your property manager.
1: Got fired. We essentially we were not getting the traction we we anticipated. We knew that we were gonna have to come down on the resident. We hadn't had any new residents in there. Work was super slow. And they just were not. I mean, you know this, Andrew, that there's just not a lot of quality property managers in this space. Right. They, not, they don't and yeah. and it's not that they're not quality property managers, they just don't have the core competency of being a manufactured housing community manager. It just takes a different skill set.
0: And there's so, some out there, you know, like blank family communities. And I know my friends over at Three Pillars on the West Coast, yeah. they're starting to third party manage, but certain assets, right? Not deep value add in the heart of Alabama. You know, it's uh, they're going after stuff that's more stabilized <laughs> and, and is easier to manage. But but yeah, your apartment. Property managers are just not equipped to manage mobile home parks it's
1: they're not and and their their process is completely different their typical you know customer has got different expectations and they couldn't create that community so we would come down and we would you know we would go down ourselves we would we let out the community ourselves we we would take in applications we screened everybody ourselves. And we would go down, show the units. As crazy as that sounds, um, and we built our business doing that. So from that point, we said, "We're if th- if we want to control the product, we've got to control the process." So we do all in-house management. We took everything in-house. As it turned out for us, we had somebody on staff who was here on a student visa and had to go back home to Kosovo because her you know fa- mother got sick, and she still wanted to work for us. And she had been in our office for a number, uh, for almost a year. And we built an overseas admin team over the last few years, which I think really became a differentiator for us. So now when we go on site, we have an overseas, not a like overseas VA, we we actually have an overseas office that handles our onboarding, our customer relationship management, um, ha- handles our maintenance issues and our sales and marketing. So we handle that in-house, but we handle that from our office over in Kosovo. So we have about nine people there that work for us. And then, you know, the executives are here. And we have, you know, obviously our team at Stone Capital. And then on site, you know, on-site managers. And you get a good manager, you know, they could do two or three communities. And then our roving maintenance teams that that kind of work in hubs. So we can move them around as needed, you know, in different segments as we're getting some of the work done. So we've kind of layered ourselves, but Having that overseas admin staff allows us to do- um That's huge. Well, I think-
0: I have I, a team overseas as well. I did it by choice, but you kind of did it by accident. But like, I think that's huge. I don't even know where Kosova is, but that is like, I mean, that's really fantastic. You have a whole it, office of nine employees over there.
1: Correct. And, and you know, the, the difference being is that in this space, again, you know, your resident- they own their home. They, they have their, their largest asset in your property. They are just as vested, if not more vested in that community, but they want to feel that attachment from the owner. Right. And if they feel that attachment, they're they're they'll stay. If sure. they don't feel that attachment, they're willing to, they will leave. And I totally. think you've seen that in the last few years. I mean, that, that's kind of been the differentiator between some operators and some people who just got in the space. Bought yeah. parks, raised rents, and then so people leave and they couldn't understand why.
0: Yeah. I'd like to do something fun here, Frank. Let's do like a lightning round. I'm going to ask okay. some questions and you just fire off just real quick answers and we'll kind of just go through this because we're we're running out of time. Sure. Uh, the first question is, do you guys own in New York State? No. No. Okay. No. Tenant owned, it, it seemed like your tenant owned home, you know, based, but tenant owned homes versus park owned homes. Tenant, homes. tenant, tenant owned homes. Tenant owned homes. And do you guys do like the rent to own program to like Correct. get them to convert them over? Okay. Passive investors. We're talking LPs that are looking to invest in syndications. What are the most important things that they need to look out for when investing into MHPs?
1: I think they need to know the experience and the business model of whatever operator or sponsor they're going to invest with. I think that's super critical and where they're going, you know, in that business plan, what's their turnaround plan or in your instance, where's that transition period of, of where that where that community is going to really start to take off and take a, a life of its own. So they've got to have a clear vision for that and they've got to have a clear vision for what their strategy and plan for the, that site is. It shouldn't just be, hey, we buy the park and we raise the rents. I think that's a bad business plan. And I think that we've seen that. I'm sure you've seen that in the last yeah. few years as this, this industry has become a little bit more trendy, but that's a bad business plan. And I don't think that's something that you could back up and sit in markets or economies where things are transitioning.
0: Totally. If you were going to invest passively you know, into another mobile home park operator's deal, what would be the number one thing that mattered most to you?
1: The operator, I, I'd yeah. want to know that I, I, you have an experienced operator that's that's had the, you know, had multiple exits and entries has a has a business plan that works and has a team that's that's standing behind it.
0: Would you invest in a first deal operator like like someone's first deal?
1: Great question. Listen, people invested in my first deal, so Stay I do believe I, yeah. I do believe that you do pay it forward, but it's knowing. Where that person's vision is, and you know what are you going to do if things go wrong. So in our first deal, when things went wrong, and then we had a fire, and that property manager fired us. My partner Eric and I, we were driving seventeen hours to the park. You know, taking shifts, driving, spending the weekend, driving seventeen hours back to get things done. So if if they have that type of commitment to making sure that the that the end result is going to be the same, that's somebody that you back. Whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, but if they don't have that passion, I, I think that would be that 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 would be the big differentiator for me.
0: Agreed. What's coming in the next twelve months?
1: So we see the opportunity pipeline starting to to open up a bit. I think that you're going to see, especially as. People, you have to reset their rates or they, they realize that their expectations haven't hit. I think you're going to see some, some deal flow increase. Last year was tight across the board. I think we're starting to see that tick up. So I think from an operator acquisition point, I think you're going to find some good deals over the next 12 months. I think that if you're if you're waiting, if you own a community and you don't know where you're going with it and you've got a, a you know, if you're kicking the can down the road because you think that the rates might go down, you might as well get out now while you have the chance. So if you don't, I think it could be treacherous waters ahead.
0: I hope you're right. What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why?
1: I think mid sized market, probably 50, to hundred and fifty thousand people in the, in the MSA. I think we have some vacant home park owned homes on site. I think you got third generation, uh, multi-generational ownership who Aren't really looking at it as an operator, looking at it more as a um, income stream, or you have somebody who maybe purchased the park not knowing what they were buying. I think that's that's kind of our, our perfect scenario. And someone who's like, I, I need the surety of getting out now. Um, I've, I've had people come in. A lot of people kick the co- tires. They come in, they see it, they don't. They re- once they start peeling back the onion, they get they get scared. I think that's our that's our you know that's our perfect bread and butter. Yeah, that's our bread and butter. So so we you know we're not worried about walking into a situation where you have maybe some unruly tenants or, or things have kind of gotten out of hand. I mean we're you know we feel we have the capacity and capability of getting into there and working that out.
0: That's awesome. What's the biggest threat to mobile home park investing in your eyes?
1: I think across the board our biggest challenge is is the labor pool because down on the ground you need your team to implement. So you got to make sure that you have a good team in place that can implement what you're doing, especially if you're operating remotely. I think, so I think if, you know, we, I have to compliment our team. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you know, this, Andrew, you've scaled out into multiple states. You can only do that because you have strong connections with the people around you. Uh, Our team is vested into what we're doing. They work hard. And I think that's, you know, that's key. You got to make sure that the people down uh, you know downstream they buy into your culture and realize what you're trying to do I mean we focus on making that community better right when we walk in that's our motto we, you know we make communities better and if your people on the on the ground they're your ambassador you know they have to be telling your resident that this is what we're looking to do and getting them to buy into the changes and improvements that are being made I love that
0: Frank how can our listeners get a hold of you if they would like to do so
1: so a couple of ways. You could go to our website at stonecapinv.com. That's our company. You could do that. You could follow us on the mhpexchange.com. Uh, the mhpexchange.com where we've created a platform where there's opportunity, news, education, and, and hopefully you find us entertaining, right? So you get a little bit of of everything in one uh, one platform. You could check us out on the mhp exchange. Uh, .com, where you could get some information on the podcast. You could see some recent deals and you could find industry news as it happens, uh, populate there as well.
0: Super cool. What is one last bit of inv- advice before we sign off here that you would give an interested passive investor, you know, an LP uh, that's looking to invest in somebody's deal that we don't know, you know, what would you tell them would be like, you know, the number one most important thing that you'd tell them?
1: Take a look at the the business plan. That's, that's that's being put forth right understand where they're creating the value you know it's you know I spoke with somebody from a company they bought a, a you know over 100 communities in the last couple of years and they did it with the idea of hey I could just raise the rents people own their homes and all of a sudden they've had a lot of people leave and they fired their entire operation staff and now they're they're kind of resetting the organization from there so understand the business plan and where they're creating value and if if they're not leading first or they're not creating value for the resident it's tough to get the resident to stay even though it's a sticky resident in general so so know that business plan and get a comfortability with that and that on the execution of that
0: that's huge yeah cuz there are you know business plans out there that are raising rents hey i'm going to raise rents 100 dollars this year 100 dollars next year 100 dollars year 3 and it's like you know, I just, I just feel like that's just shady business practices. Like there's 100%. a moral, you know, issue there, and then also, a lot of our investors don't want to invest, you know, in in that kind of value add. They want social stewardship. They want to keep the affordable housing. It's like a, a duty that they're investing in this not only for the returns but to keep that affordable housing there instead of it getting mm-hmm. redeveloped into something else. So thank you for for stating that, Frank.
1: So Andrew, I, I listen. I, we we believe in that. And you, we look at it this way: If your your resident doesn't have a problem if the lot rent goes up, but the roads are done, the place is clean, the junkers have gone gone out. But if you're just you know looking at them like I'm going to just constantly take 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 without giving back, no nobody wants to be part of that process, and nobody wants to be part of that platform. So I mean that's that's one of the the key things that I think just it's the beauty of this business and in this industry, but it's something that any investor should look at.
0: Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Frank, and congrats on your success.
1: Andrew, thank you for having us. Uh, Appreciate it and I appreciate it being on and and continued success to you and your team.
0: That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. A quick reminder for you to please leave us a review. If you got value out of this show, thanks again for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, Would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.